All right, Pete Giuliano, it is Wednesday, March 30th, 2022, and that makes this what? 236. 236. Smarter Smoke 236. Crank it in, Robert. Crank it in, Ralph. Crank it in, Robert. Crank it in, Ralph. Pete, it has been a long time since we did a Solder Smoke podcast, but we have good excuses. I think we should explain. Yeah. I think we have to explain to our listening and perhaps soon-to-be viewing audience. There's been some exciting developments. One of the reasons that there's been such a long delay in us getting Solder Smoke 236 out is actually it's, it's a result of success. The big success that we had with putting out the video versions of the podcast. People really like the fact that we're recording in video and putting it up on YouTube and people can watch. But apparently it's not just our our former podcast ham radio listeners who've been watching. Other people have been watching too. So we got, you and I both got an email a month and a half, two months ago saying, hey, we're kind of interested in the podcast. We'd like to make it not just a video cast, but we see... TV, cable TV potential, kind of specialized. This, these are from the people. We can't really mention the company yet, but it's the same group of people that put out these kind of specialized kind of tech-oriented. Oh, like the fishing channel like the and the fishing car channel, stuff? The car channel. You and I both watch yeah. the car channel. The yeah. cooking channel, the whole home remodeling channel. All these, you know, there's been these channels. You and I have mentioned it here from time to time. How come there's not kind of a, a ham radio channel, a ham radio home brewing channel. Well, when they took a look at the video, Pete, I was shocked because apparently you and I are more telegenic than we thought. Ooh. I definitely thought I had a, a face for radio. You know? uh, yeah. But I, I always knew that you were you you were ready for the for the big screen, especially with the beret. I need to start wearing my bow tie and everything else. <laughs> but they they liked it. So they they actually, and this provided a good excuse, they said that they wanted to to meet with us out there on the left coast in La La Land. And since you're out there, I mean, this is great. I never had the chance to meet you before. Now we got out there, got to meet you, and we went down and we talked to the suits. Woo. And I, I was skeptical all along, but I figured, what the heck, we're going out there, I get, to get a chance to meet Pete, get to, get to go fly across Continental get out of the cold northeast, get into that nice Southern California sunshine. And uh, we talked to them, and they were really interested. We told them what it was about. We told them what we do. They said they liked the craft aspect of it. They said they thought it would appeal to their audience. Now, again, this, this is from the same group that's kind of put on them. Remember the show Orange County Choppers, where they would make yeah. motorcycles? But they have yeah. to have they have to have conflict. They have to have kind of a the toodles. Yeah, the toodles. Yeah, right. They have to have something a fight going on among the, the characters. And so there they had the the tuttles, right? That right. The, the old man would fight against the son, and they would have arguments about design. So they asked us if there was any potential for conflict between the two of us. <laughs> and we said, "Oh yeah." <laughs> Pete's yeah. got the digital VFOs, and I've got the analog VFOs. They didn't even know what that was, but they saw potential for conflict. They said, "Great, you guys can argue about that and everything else." Look, these things—they're never done until they're really done. So all they've committed to so far is a pilot, and I understand this is sort of standard practice out there. Um, we're going to do—we are—we're going to actually. 
we've already shot the pilot. We we did it. They set up a little workshop for us. We we did a lot of clips, a lot of videos and stuff. So the pilot is now, as they say in the business, in the can, and uh, it's going to come out soon. And they're going to we're going to see how it goes. So I think everybody who's interested in this should keep an eye open and an ear open for when this thing is going to come on and what channel at that point we'll be able to divulge more for now just send us an email at soldersmoke.yahoo.com soldersmoke at yahoo.com soldersmoke one word at yahoo.com and we'll put you on the list for notifications for when when this thing actually hits the uh the cable systems but it's going to be called the solder smoke shop it's going to feature you and me and we're going to be talking about building radios and arguing about what's better, the SI5351 or analog VFOs. We might even talk about homebrew filters versus commercial filters, things like that. All the same stuff there we talk go. about here. Yeah, there you go. Peter, it was great. It was great to get out there to La La Land, get the left Yeah, coast. well, you know, the other positive side of this thing is they're, they're talking about supplying us a wardrobe. They didn't like my threads. Well, they, they definitely did. <laughs> <laughs> they said they, they got to do something. They got to get me a better haircut too. I mean, you're good. You might get a few free berets out of this thing too, because the yeah, beret. They yeah, like the beret yeah. thing. Yeah, the whole yeah. the whole chick magnet thing. They like. Anyway, stay tuned. Send us an email, and we'll put you on the list for for notification uh, on which channel this thing will be on. Because there's got there's like a million channels. There's like like thousand thousand channels. You can't. I, I can't keep track of it. We let us know. We'll, we'll 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 let us know that you're interested, and then we'll we'll put you on the list. Hey, one other thing I wanted to mention. I went to a ham fest on Sunday. Yes. I know. I know you don't, you, you, you I, I have to struggle sometimes. But listen, this was the first time in, well, we missed two Winterfest ham fests here because of the pandemic. So Winterfest was finally back. And I had another, another motive for going, and that is because our friend Dean, KK4DAS, is now the president of the Vienna Wireless Society of Vienna, Virginia, which is my local club. And so anyway, a while back, uh, Dean contacted me and said, hey, look, we're going to do uh, a forum, uh, kind of a presentation on home brewing, and would you come along? And I said, man, Dean, I, I don't even know if I'm going to the ham fest, so let's wait. So I waited until almost literally the last minute. And contacted him and said, "Yeah, if you'd like me to be there, I'll, I'll sit with you and and we could talk a little bit about homebrew." And he put together a really nice presentation. Oh yes, nice slides. I saw it. I'm glad you saw yeah. it. You were watching. Yeah, and it, it was nice. We have it up on the Solder Smoke blog. Now you have to go to the start point because it's like a five hour long live stream video that they've got up there. But I I, I note the point at which we start talking about homebrew and solder smoke. So if you go to that point and just start from there. You you could get to the important stuff in in the video, <laughs> <laughs> but but you know uh, um, a couple other things. I, I I was it was interesting to see the Hamfest because I think the Hamfest is a way to get a view of what's happening in ham radio. And one thing I noticed, and this in part may be the result of the the two year hiatus that we've been dealing with, but it also reflects something that we've been hearing on the internet and other on on the air people talking about it man there were there were a lot of boat anchors really nice boat anchors i mean early collins gear collins s lines kwm2s big old hammerlands nice nice rigs really in good shape and they they were moving and dean told me that by the end of the hamfest most of them had been sold 
but they weren't moving nearly as fast as they were just a few years ago. I remember that to get anywhere near rigs like that, you had to show up at like O Dark 30 as guys were unloading their, you know, their U-Haul vans full of the stuff and make an offer as they were carrying it in. And if you didn't, well, forget it. You weren't going to get them. They were lingering there a lot longer. The other thing I noticed was something similar happening with old analog test equipment. The old tech scopes. I, I have an old tech 465 scope with a complete set of manuals and everything that uh, AL7RV uh, gave me a while back, W8NSA now. Um, and it it failed on me and I replaced it with the uh, with the Rigol scope that they were all they were all using now. But I, w- I always had it in mind. I said, man, somebody would really love this Tech 465 scope because they can they could fix it up and then they could use it. Uh, I don't know because at the Hampfest there was a large quantity of working old scopes that were selling for not a lot of money and they weren't even moving. They, I think eventually moved at the end, but they were all selling for like a hundred bucks or something like that. And I thought these things were, I thought it'd be worth a lot more than that. But again, there's a, there's apparently a lot of this stuff out there. There's kind of a glut on the market. I think that this test gear might be affected by the availability of the digital storage scopes like we're using, like the Rigol scopes. They're small, they're light, they're, they don't break. Computer they, interface. They, computer interface computer to interface. store data. They've got Fourier transforms in there. You could do math with them. There's all kinds of stuff that you couldn't do with an old tech analog scope. So it may, all of this made me think that I had chosen wisely in deciding not to go out to the, uh, <laughs> to the tailgate area with my car full of old junk because I probably would have sat there in the cold all morning and not sold any of it. So it was cold too. It was, it was like, we've had cold weather out here on the East coast the last yeah, week. I, I saw you, I saw pictures of you with a sweater and a coat. Oh man. And I was still cold out there. I was glad to get back and get inside in the heated area. It was cold. It was like winter fest from days gone by, but anyway, it was great. It was great fun to get to the ham fest. I actually enjoyed it. I talked to, to Dean. We did the presentation. I met up with, uh, my old friend Armin, WA1UQO. Uh, I mentioned during the presentation that, that a piece of equipment that he had given me, the mixer, had made its way into the 1712 rig. Yeah, and so I, I was trying to explain to the newcomers the spirit of uh, Ham Radio Homebrew. I said, you know, we don't, it's a lot, it's a lot less harsh. It's not as harsh as the, um, the computer world where they, they seem to like to haze the noobs, as they call them. I said, man, we don't, we don't haze noobs. We, we help novices. We kind of share stuff. We share equipment, parts. If some guy needs something, we give it to him. And I, met, I, I pointed to Armin's providing of the, um, of the mixer chip as, as an example. I also met up with Charles, AI4OT. And I, I, I seem to run into Charles every ham fest, a great guy from, from here in Northern Virginia. And he was, he was braving the cold weather out there in the, in the, in the uh, tailgate area. But he and I had a good good talk, and I, I put a um, a picture of myself with Charles and with uh, with Armand up there on the uh, on the blog page with uh, along with the, uh, the the recording of the uh, the presentation that we made. So check that out. So it's been a it's been good. It was good. It was good to be back at the uh, in person Hamfest. It's almost like yeah, we're we're getting back to a semblance of normal. I hope. But Pete, 
you what has been going on on your bench between our visits out to La La Land and the suits and everything else? You must have been doing. I know you've been doing some radio. Yeah, not not too much. Uh, many people don't know my uh, my XYL has not been in the best of health, and uh, she was in in the hospital actually for about two months. And she's not home, so um, a lot of my time is consumed with caregiving, so not too much uh, bench time. Although, uh, you know, if you get up at 3 o'clock in the morning, you can't, you can't, you can't look at stuff. <laughs> you just, you forego sleeping. <laughs> forego sleeping. So everybody gets, everybody gets a measure, you know. It's just a little, little hard on you personally. But a couple of things I wanted to share. Uh, first of I, you know, this worldwide chip shortage, I think some people are taking advantage of it, uh, and, and we're on the disadvantage end of it. The uh, SI570 chip, you know, the one with the low phase noise yeah. made by, is now company owned by Skyworks. Uh, single lot chips were selling for about 15 bucks here five, six months ago. Uh, Skyworks bought Silicon Labs, and now that chip is $40. $40 for just the chip, and then and that, that doesn't get you the rest of the hardware. So I discovered that there's a there's a couple of alternative chips out there, uh, boards. Actually, Max, the Max company makes a lot of specialty chips. They have the 2870, which is the whole board is like in the $40 range with, with, a, uh, with a device on it. It would be programmable. But, you know, the, the short side of that is uh, in the literature, it says... This uh, particular chip can be programmed with an Arduino or controlled with an Arduino or it can be controlled with a computer or you can use a USB port. And then it says, but we have no information on the computer or USB port. <laughs> so, I mean, if you want to hook this into a computer to, to control it like, like you would with the Quist software on a software-defined radio, you can't. The, the information is just not there. But but the board's there with an Arduino, and of course you're somewhat limited in what you can do with the Arduino. So I'm saying it's good to see that there's some alternatives out there. But at the same time, we need we it's need limited. somebody to come up and write the the program to use yeah. the Max twenty eight seventy. Yeah. I, I put yeah. you put an appeal on your blog, and I put an appeal on mine, saying, "Hey, all of you software wizards out there." Please step forward and say you could write us the yeah, program. I, I Have you heard get, from anybody? Yeah, I did get some response. As a matter of fact, some guy, as a PhD project, <laughs> took that, and he built this signal generator from DC to 1 gigahertz. Wow. <laughs> he's, he's in this board, you know. But it's pretty complex because there's a lot of software behind the, the thing. I mean, it's it's more than just a radio. This is, this is a piece of serious stuff test instrumentation but someone did put me onto it and the 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 code for that it's got to use a mega 2560 it's a specialized form of arduino there's another one uh, analog devices has a 5341 same basic idea but but the problem is they produce this amazing hardware but there's very little software support for it i mean if you're if you're hiding in the closet techno techno geeky type you're you're in you're, you're there, but if you just want to implement it into a radio project and don't want to just develop software, you're you're somewhat on the short end of the stick. Well, that's from, too from bad. That standpoint. Yeah, I mean, I, I I really hope that somebody out there who can come up with good simple code for the the Max twenty eight seventy will step forward and sort of write the code for 
you know, for us, for the for the whole group. Yeah. And I, yeah. I, I put on my um, on my blog page, Pete, just sort of tongue in cheek. I said, opportunities to to help um, Pete Giuliano of Soderspoke don't come <laughs> along every day because Pete basically <laughs> knows everything and has built everything. I said, it, but, but but you you admitted that writing a whole software package like this might be best left to somebody who's a software yeah, engineer. Yeah, knows what they're doing. <laughs> right. So okay, software engineers. Can somebody come up and write a simple program that will allow uh, us, Pete, to do with the Max 2870 board and an Arduino what we want it to do and solve the whole uh, chip supply chain problem here for uh, users of digital equipment in in ham radio? So, uh, hey, Pete, this week we could fight about this in the next episode. I could make fun of 2870 and I could talk about how I bought a capacitor and you could pour scorn on that. Hey, hey. Didn't you didn't you end up with a box of capacitors from the Hamfest? I did, I did. Um, wow! There are many many analog VFOs in that box, ready to pop. Yeah, out. you showed you showed me a picture. Yeah, it was uh, an exciting so box. We'll, we'll talk about we'll talk about that that, <laughs> that in a minute. But um, but anyway, I thought that was really interesting uh, about <clears throat> the twenty eight seventy and the search for software. You also you had a good good piece on the blog on using tapped capacitance for impedance matching. Yes. And that that's an important topic. You know, it's, it's it, that that's not discussed a lot. We're really used to tapped inductors or transformers where you put yes. you know two or three turns and then that becomes the 50 ohms when the when the LC circuits actually higher impedance. But tapping capacitors the way you did is another really useful and important technique. And I'm glad you, you went into it in some detail. So it's uh, check out Pete's blog for information on that. I linked yeah. to it on the on the Solder Smoke blog. And Pete, the pea shooter. Yes. What's happening the with the pea shooter? shooter? Oh, well, it's interesting you should mention the pea shooter. I had I was waiting for two critical components to go in the pea shooter, and they were non-electronic, some aluminum. <laughs> I, I ordered some aluminum plate, and I found it on on Amazon. But it came from Taiwan, so you had to wait till this. I mean, we don't make aluminum here in the United States anymore. You know, you want to get you want to get aluminum. It's got to come from either China or Taiwan. So I wanted to get a front panel, put a front panel on it. But the P shooter is an offshoot of the, the P three ST. Someone says they got tired of saying the SSSSS, so they say P three ST. And this one uses mimics instead of the uh, transistors. And I've got I've got it working. It's just it doesn't have a front panel. So soon I hope is I can steal some time at three o'clock in the morning. <laughs> if, go, if the Taiwanese boat comes in, <laughs> yeah, so I could make the front panel. But uh, actually, someone has someone else, uh, Bill Costello. I sent you some pictures. He built the pea shooter, and he's got that work. And he used it in the DX contest. I think he worked fourteen countries. Wow, fourteen countries with the pea shooter. So. Hey, it's it's pretty pretty nice. It's small, compact, and I saw that. Goal. And he 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 had really a novel approach to boxing it up. Yes, I had never <laughs> seen this before. This this takes alfresco alfresco and kind of improvised boxing to a new level. What this guy did was he needed some place to put the boards and the speaker and the switches. We've all been there. So he used the the mailing cardboard box that that a lot of the stuff came in. 
Yes. It's I you know it's it's, it's ugly, it's, but it's it gets a you whole there. new term for a post office box, right? <laughs> <laughs> Talk about repurposing. There you go. Yeah, yeah, it was cool. Cool looking. Yeah, very nice. Anyway, so that, that that was pretty cool. Um, yeah. And then finally, one thing I really liked that I saw on your blog that I thought was really useful was your 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 comments tribal knowledge on making enclosures. Now, we, we definitely, everybody needs help on this. I especially need help on this. Let me tell you a story. When we did the presentation at the Vienna Wireless Society, I had brought with me my uh, Mythbuster transceiver, right? Which I am quite proud of, by the way. And I, I, I actually brought a little battery and turned it on so you could see the glowing Giuliano blue numerals in there, the band switch going from 20 to 75 meters, a little bit of hiss from the from the speaker on the enclosure inside, and I had it on the table, and one person who had, who had been a very attentive participant in the uh, in the whole presentation, and she was being very nice about it. She said, "Really interesting rig, great work on that, but your cabinetry really needs some improvement." <laughs> <laughs> and I said, "Yeah." That's definitely not my strong suit. That's probably why I stick with plywood, because it's it's if it's bad in plywood, can you imagine how bad it would be if it was actually in metal? So anyway, but you 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 got some great ideas on that, and you put them up on the blog. Yeah, I did. Actually, a long time ago, I adopted a standard using uh, uh, one half inch by one half inch aluminum angle stock. Yeah. And uh, you you can use all sorts of materials. Uh, matter of fact, aluminum is kind of spendy these days, but you can get PC board. And there's no reason why you can't make the front panel and the back panel on a PC board. I've got a lot of rigs with it, and it paints well. Yeah. I mean, believe it or not, you can paint over it, and it looks just as... You don't even know it's a piece of PC board. And in many respects... It's it's easier to work with because I can actually mill it out on, on my CNC, you know, the holes for bezels and meters and things of that sort. But uh, I adopted the standard of using the half-inch by half-inch aluminum stock, and it works perfect. You have front, back, sides, what have you. And uh, matter of fact, I'm going to show you something when I get the front panel and the pea shooter. One of the problems has always been you can mount it at the bottom with a piece of angle stock, but you get a flex in the panel. Mm -hmm. You know, the, the panel, the front panel is flexing back unless you support it from behind. Mm -hmm. So I've come up with a novel idea for supporting that front panel so it won't flex. Oh man! And you'll you'll see that you'll see that in the pea shooter. So that was that was another thing I was waiting for the metal because I got some really thin gauge metal, and boy, that thing would just flop back and forth. So uh, you'll see that when I get the get the front panel on the pea shooter. One of my first receivers, the first one, I think the actual first superhead receiver that I built was the bare bone superhead that I talk about all the time. I've since built three, four other versions of them, and I got a kit. Dale Parfit recently sent me a a kit, a a, a far circuits board for the bare bone superhead. But the first one I built was scratch built, and I I faced this problem of what am I going to enclose it in? I, I had never built anything to the point where I actually had to build an enclosure. So I put this piece of flimsy aluminum on it. But like you said, it was flexing all over the place and it was not stable. So then I put another piece and another piece. And I think I ended up with four pieces. It was like laminate. And it finally got rigid enough so it wasn't floating all over the place. But it is a problem. But take a look at uh, at Pete's blog page. I've linked to it on the Solder Smoke blog. Tribal knowledge on making enclosures. 
good stuff, Pete. I hope people will be following your, your lead on all that. Hey, um, speaking of enclosures, I have behind me, I'm, I'm pointing to it. This is the 1712 rig, and it has a front panel on it right now. I had it just al fresco, just sitting there with all the, the guts exposed, and I kind of liked it that way. We talked about this at the, uh, the Vienna Wireless Society, how you're reluctant to put an enclosure on it because you can't look at the magnificence of your electronics uh, as easily. I actually thought about getting a piece of plexiglass and putting plexiglass so I could look through at the different parts. But I had this piece of uh, plywood from the uh, delivery of the pandemic treadmill, and I decided to use it. So I cut it out. It turned out this was a bit thicker than the one I had used on the on the MythBuster rig. So I had a little bit of trouble getting the uh, the the uh, the, uh, the controls to come through the front panel. But I got them in there. And I only have one. I have a band switch control. I have the main frequency control. I have an audio gain control, and I have a, a jack for the for the microphone. The rig is is working on both 17 and 12. Now, just let me describe this a little bit because I've talked about it, but I'll just recap. It is essentially a band imaging receiver, like the MythBuster. Um, one of the frequencies is above the IF and the other is below the IF. And we just use the uh, addition or subtraction of the VFO frequency to get to the two different bands. Now, this is a simple way to do it. The MythBuster, the two bands are 75 meters and 20 meters, and the IF is at 5 megahertz. So you add 9 megahertz to 5, and it gets you to 14. You subtract 5 megahertz from 9, and it gets you down into the 75 meter band. And you could do that on 75 and 20 without having to do an additional uh, BFO or carrier oscillator frequency because one band is low LSB, one band is USB. On the 1712 rig, um, the, the arrangement is such that you do not have any sideband inversion for either of the frequencies. On 12 meters, you are adding the BFO frequency, the, I'm sorry, the VFO frequency to the carrier oscillator frequency. The, v, the IF is 21.4, so that's the carrier oscillator frequency, 21.475 to be precise. And then you're adding a VFO frequency and gets you up into the 24.9 megahertz range, which is 12 meters. On the other side, you're subtracting um, the VFO frequency uh, from the um, the carrier oscillator frequency. You're moving in the other direction, so you're 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 at upper sideband on both. All right, so it 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 works out it works out pretty well because you're subtracting 3.5 from 3.5, which does not have the modulation. You're subtracting it from the 21.4 which has the modulation. So you're not, this is the Hallis rule, and it doesn't violate the Hallis rule. So on this rig also, you do not need two different carrier oscillator frequencies. But it's, it's basically band imaging with the two work bands, 12 and 17, in there. Now, I had some apprehension when I was building it. I was wondering if this was going to work because I was going to end up with bad you know, spurs or images. But I knew the receivers were working great, and uh, and I had no problems, no no birdies, no no real problems there. And then 
uh, when I started getting the transmitter going, the transmitters going, I built the RF power amplifier stages. Right away, I was making contacts right away on 17 and just a few days later on 12. So I'm now making contacts on, on both bands. And it's, uh, you know, there's still some, some little problems to work out, kind of interesting problems. For example, I want to have a, a frequency readout, a digital frequency readout on this rig, similar to what I had on the Mythbuster rig. So I'm going to use a little Sanjian frequency counter. But, but the Sanjian frequency counter cannot be made to work. What, what's the matter? Well, the, the, the subtraction thing. Yeah, the subtraction that, that's the problem. You, you've identified the problem. I can't do it. It won't get both bands. It, it worked with the Mythbuster. It won't work here because you have to specify the IF. So my IF is 21.47. And then for the band where I'm subtracting, you have to basically subtract... The, the the VFO frequency because you're, you're going to input the VFO frequency. The VFO is running around 3.5, but 3.5 minus 21.47 is a negative is a number. negative number, and this thing doesn't handle <laughs> negative numbers. Yeah, yeah, so yeah. the whole thing goes kaput. But I have a, a scheme. Let me tell you, let me ask you. See what you think about this. So here's what I want to do. I'm going to put the uh, Sanjian counter on the front panel. On behind it, in a little Altoids box, I'm going to build a mixer. It may be an NE602. It may be an SBL1. To the mixer, I'm going to take a sample of the carrier oscillator frequency, which is around 21.47 right there, and, and is fixed, and a sample of the VFO frequency. There's going to be a, a band switching relay inside the little box. On one side, it's going to select for adding the two, the sum product. On the other side, it's going to select for the uh, subtraction product. And so that should give me the 17 meter frequency in one position and the uh, 12 meter frequency in the other position. And I'm going to run the output right into the Sanjian counter. In that way, I think that'll actually give a very accurate readout of what the frequency is, right? Does that sound good to you? Uh, I actually have done that. All right, good. W which rig did you do it with? If you look on the JES Systems website, jessystems.com, there's a tribander rig, tribander rig, and what I did is I put a series of bandpass filters All right. on the output of the <clears throat> of the mixer, and then you select the Based on the band, you selected the right bandpass filter. So you take a look at that. That's how I did it there because of the mixing process that I had to go through. Right, right. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I have bandpass filters in there for the rig that are working now. But on, I have a separate set of bandpass that, filters. That's what just, I realized. Just, I, I tried to figure out a way that I could use the bandpass yes. filters that I already built, and there was just no way to do it because you, you yes. would work on transmit but not on receive or something like few, that. Few parts. I know. That's it. I might. You might not even have to go to dual tune circuits. You might be able to do it with just one tank circuit. Uh, I did. I did the dual tune. Dual tune. I might. I might. I might do that too. But I could fit it all into a little Altoids box. Now, did you? What kind of mixture did you use? SBL ones. All right. See, this is the radio gods have spoken, Pete. Because the other day, I'm 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 on Facebook looking for ham radio stuff, and it spots an ad. Somebody out way out on the West Coast. I think it's Salem, Oregon 
is selling five brand new SBL1 mixers. I said, man, 20 bucks, let's go. Boom, it's on the way. It should arrive today. So I might put that in there. I think that's the best way to do it. That I won't have to worry about power in any Yeah, just look at the, the Tri-Band, the 2009 Tri-Band transceiver. Uh, man, and, I, I, I am so pleased that I came up independently with a solution that you... <laughs> You did also. I mean, right, this, this shows that I'm somehow, I'm, I'm on the right track here. All right. Yes, it'll work. It, it works. It worked beautifully. You know, <clears throat> speaking about being on the right track, um, you know, you and I have disagreements about analog VFOs, but it's mostly just a shtick, as they say in Hollywood. It's sort of an opportunity to kind of disagree. But um, I, I really liked Mike Murphy, WU2D. He did a series of... of um, of videos on how to build a VFO, how to properly build a VFO. And he had a lot of good ideas in there. He was um, taking a lot of it from Frank Harris's book, K0IYE, his book from Crystal Sets to Sideband. And Frank shares a lot of tribal wisdom that he's picked up over the years in building things. And so Mike was relaying a lot of that. I also, I, I, I did a lot of reading from Joe Carr, um, he wrote a lot about how to build VFOs. So there was, a, there was great information from all of them. Also, Doug DeMoor had a lot of guidance on things to do or don't do when building VFOs. Um, so I, I, I adopted bits and pieces of most of it. Now, I didn't go the full Frank Harris in building the VFO. Frank recommended building the whole thing in a hermetically sealed die cast box. And it was almost like, if you don't do it this way, you're doomed to drift. But then I started thinking about it. I have never really built a VFO that way. And I've had VFOs that don't really drift. The other thing is, if you look at most of the gear that we buy, the commercial gear, the boat anchor gear, even when they had tubes in these things, they didn't have the VFO in a, in a, die-cast, hermetically sealed box. If you look at rigs like the, the Micro Bidex or the Bidex 20 or the Bidex 40 module, even when they were running analog VFOs, they didn't have it, you know, they didn't have it all boxed up. The HW101 VFO is not in a hermetically sealed box. So I, I think that there may have been some, some wisdom there, but it, it may have been kind of overkill. A lot of people get very kind of obsessive about shielding each individual stage in a rig you know you got to put everything every stage has got to be in its own box it's got to be grounded and it's got to be you know rf connectors and dc decoupling all the way through yeah i mean i think sometimes i think that this is an example of how the perfect can be the enemy of the good if you if you try to do that it might make home brewing so difficult and daunting that you never actually get anything built because you're shooting for this perfection Whereas if you say, hey, wait a second, I'm going to use prudent shielding. I'm going to keep outputs away from inputs. I'm going to use toroidal inductors. I'm going to use shielded cable. I'm going to use a sensitive, lay sensible layout and space thing, everything out as much as I can. Then you can avoid the kind of problems that, that would come that would require you to, to put everything in boxes. Anyway, so I, um, I followed most of the advice in WU2D's video. And I, I used this capacitor, Pete, that, that you recommended that I get. It turned out it was the capacitor from an HT37. And in Mike's video, he was talking about temperature compensation. I 
have never attempted temperature compensation before. I usually got lucky and the thing was stable. But Mike, relaying words of wisdom from Frank, said, you really got to think about temperature compensation, even on simple solid-state VFOs. If not, it's going to drift. I was sitting there reading this, and I looked up from the bench, and on the shelf in front of me was the capacitor from the HT37 that you had recommended. And I started looking at it more carefully. It had temperature compensation caps in there. It had a split stator capacitor that allowed you to dial it in. If you put this thing on and you turned it on, if it was drifting too much in one direction, you turn the capacitor in one direction. If it's drifting too much in another direction, you turn it in the other direction until you get the thing stable. And I did that with this VFO that I built. And I was able to almost completely eliminate the drift. You, you, you should mention that there's <clears throat> that split stator capacitor has in series with it uh, two different capacitors that have uh, different uh, temperature coefficients. That's right, but they have the same capacitance value. S- same value, but different right. different, different temperatures. So, like so N750 in other words, if you turn it in one direction, you're bringing into the circuit a different temperature compensation, a different temperature right. coefficient. And you're, in essence, being able to match up to counteract usually the, the positive temperature coefficient that comes from the coil. It's usually the yep. coil. Also, the importance of air tuned coil. Anyway, I, I love this, this circuit. Mike mentioned this circuit. He actually built a split stator capacitor and showed it. And it suddenly dawned on to me what, it, what, it, what an ingenious piece of circuitry. It came out of Halicrafters. The HT44, I think, was the first one to use it. Then it was in the HT37. Then get this, Pete. This was really cool. This The FT101 VFO that you mentioned, that you told me to get. Now I have two of them. One of them is in the Mythbuster. The other one's on the shelf behind me. But um, somebody looked at it and sent, from the UK, I forget, I forget the call sign, but he sends me a message and he says, hey, Bill, that split stator capacitor trick, that's in the FT-101 circuit also. And I flipped the thing over and I looked underneath it and sure enough, you could see staring you right in the face a split stator capacitor with two caps in there of different value. But, 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 the HT44, HT37 has non-linear VFO <laughs> dials, <laughs> and, the, and the FT101 does. It does, yes, the FT101 does, and the, the, your question is a good one. If they knew how to do this, why didn't they do it more? <laughs> yeah, um, a good question. I think a lot of them were using the series-tuned culpits which is a variation of the Vaker or the Vacker. And I think that leads to a lot of um, a lot more linear frequency readout, a lot less bunching up at the top. One final note about temperature compensation, because I really got into this kind of thing. Um, you know, at the Hamfest, one of the things I bought was I bought I spotted there in like the estate sales section in a box underneath where all the good stuff usually is. Uh, what was clearly the remnants of an ARC-5 command set. I mean, this thing, it, it was beat up. I mean, this thing looked like it had actually been shot down by the Nazis, all right, and has been in a barn someplace since the shoot-down, all right, bad. But I figured, okay, there's, I understand there's a nice variable capacitor in there, 
So I'm going to get it. Five bucks later, it was in my bag. I brought it home. It turned out it's the navigation receiver, R23. There are many different versions of the ARC-5 command set receiver and transmitter. First of all, I ended up with a receiver. People, I think, use the capacitor out of the transmitter more commonly for, for VFOs. But there was a nice variable capacitor in there for the receiver. But I was I remember in Mike WU2D's video, he mentioned temperature compensation in the ARC-5 transmitter. Uh, this would be really important because they got a VFO in the transmitter. And we're talking about airplanes that went from sea level up to freezing, freezing cold. These, these, the early, the early bombers, you know, fr frostbite was a real problem for the crew members. It was got so cold up there. They had to put them in electric suits. It was really bitterly cold. So can you imagine? This is a, a piece of tube type equipment with big old tubes in there, going up to altitude to freezing altitude, and. Um, Anyway, I started thinking, there's got to be temperature compensation in there. So I started digging in the old manuals. Mike mentioned it in the transmitter. I was just wondering. They had to have it in the receiver, too. And sure enough, there it is. There's two capacitors in there in the, in the, in the ARC-5 command set transmitter. Uh, are, are, are the IF transformers okay in that receiver? The, the what? IF transformers. I haven't checked them. They, uh, uh, they could be okay. Okay, well, snag those because that could make a heck of a sideband transceiver because they're 85 kilohertz i know i could i could use them and i got a bunch of other of them floating around here and this this sort of harks back to to well to, to what we see in the drake 2b where they they're the final if and the drake 2b is at 50 kilohertz yes they were very low and they were able to get you know 500 great selectivity. selectivity 500 hertz yes. without even yeah. turning on the q multiplier yeah. So uh, good stuff. Yeah, the good idea. I, I've I've found myself thinking about this. I don't know if we'll go with the with the tubes. It might be cool no, to no. make a solid state one. Yes. Yes. A solid state arc five. All right. There you go. <laughs> anyway, good good stuff. Hey, one of the couple of things I wanted to mention just before we we move on here. Um, you know, I've decided to get a little bit more rigorous about receiver design. I I realize that I'm sort of just putting circuits together very much along the BIDX model. Just, you know, okay, if you've got, you got some amplifiers, you've got a, some mixers. Farhan always said that you really know, you only need to know how to build four circuits. An amplifier circuit, an oscillator circuit, uh, a mixer circuit, and um, I think that's it. Amplifiers, oscillator, mixers, that's about it. If you build those three, you can combine them and produce transceivers. And that's true. But then when you start reading, you know, Sherwood, Wes Hayward, and others, you start to realize that there's more to it than that. There's gain distribution. There's dynamic range. There's IMD. There's the OIP3. There's distortion, harmonic distortion, all this stuff. It's a pretty complicated topic that I have been just sort of not paying attention to. So... I guess one of my resolutions for 2022 is to try to get more, more rigorous about this stuff. And I, I found one really good article that I liked. I put a, put a link to it on the blog. And I found one really nice video that I, that, I, that I liked where the guy was talking about using some simple test gear to check the noise level on your receiver, to check the signal-to-noise ratio, to check for harmonic distortion. And uh, 
we we discovered that he was using an uh, a, 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 a signal analyzer. And I said, oh man, I don't, I don't have a signal analyzer. Um, but he was using a, a, a <laughs> an audio signal analyzer, and it was um, based on the sound card in his computer. And, and you can get freeware from it. So we, we downloaded that. Tony Fishpool and I were talking about this. And we, we downloaded it. And I have a question. He, in the video, he talks about, and some of the other authors talk about using a, a true RMS audio voltmeter to test the, your, your receiver for things like IMD, harmonic distortion, noise floor, things like that. But my question is, do I need to get a true RMS audio voltmeter, or can I get the same information from the audio signal analyzer that that we got for free uh, and the sound card in my computer? I'm not sure. I'm not sure whether you whether you need one. Why, of these why can't you use your scope? Yeah, I, I don't know whether the scope. I guess you could. You could use the scope. Sure. I don't know, but for some reason, guys with scopes were also recommending that you needed to get one of these true RMS voltmeters. Well, it's only that you they the scope is averaging, uses an averaging, whereas the uh, an analog type true RMS voltmeter would not use an averaging. You'd see peaks and that sort of thing. Yeah, yeah, or true RMS, true RMS. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think true RMS is the is the is the key there. So I don't know. Anyway, I'm think I'm thinking about this, and I guess the only other thing I did in in radio recently was I got um, the six EA eight replacements for the six U eights. We were talking bad about the six U eights. Grayson told us you don't don't badmouth the six U eights. They're they're pretty good, but they're kind of old in the they're long in the tooth, Pete. And they say the six. I, I got some too. I haven't I haven't plugged them in yet, but I got I I got some too. Some what? Some six EA eights? Yeah. So did I. I think, and so did uh, so did Scott, who was working on the Made for the Mighty Midget. I plugged the six EA eights into my Made for the Mighty Midget, and it perked up immediately. It was like it was rejuvenated. I hit it with the, the fountain of youth for for tube type receivers. I I bought a fourth <clears throat> six EA eight to replace the mixer tube in my Drake two B. You know, there's a six U eight in the two B. And if that's similarly aging, that might be dragging down the performance of the Drake 2B. I have it sitting on top, and I'll replace that, and I'll report back on uh, on what we what we have there. Pete, it's now time for the Shameless Commerce Division, and yes. we have to talk because we actually have a sponsor. This is great. We don't, you know, we're not out there hounding Icom or Kenwood or Yesu to sponsor us. No, but occasionally somebody will come to us and say i want to sponsor a solder smoke podcast and we got that inquiry from a from a guy that we we talked to a while back this is carlos his company is called parts candy one word altogether parts plural candy he's on ebay i have a link to his ebay store on the on the solder smoke blog in the left hand column it's hard to miss it's near the top on the left-hand column. And to get to his store, just click on it. Carlos is one of us. Uh, he is an electronics tinkerer. And he started to realize, I think, that a lot of the test leads, test gear, test leads, clip, clip leads, that hams and other tinkerers were using were really not good. 
I had so many really crappy test leads where you could see they just had a piece of wire, they had two alligator clips, they used a crimping tool, and they kind of hoped that it made good contact. Sometimes it would make good contact, sometimes it wasn't. Exactly what you don't need in a clip lead. You need, you need it to make good contact all the time. Carlos answered that by using high-quality uh, alligator clips, good-quality wire, and personally hand-soldering all the wires to the clip leads. So you know that there's a good electrical connection in there. I ordered a set of clip leads or alligator leads from, um, from Carlos. When they arrived, I immediately threw out <laughs> all of the other clip leads that I had laying around the shack. And I've only used his, so f uh, since that time, I've never had a problem with a bad clip lead. So if you're looking for, for test leads, clip leads, take a look at Parts Candy on eBay. His store is there. Carlos is, a, like I said, a good guy, and you can get to his store just by going on the left-hand column of the Solder Smoke blog, and you'll see the ad for Parts Candy. Just click on the picture, and it'll take you right to Carlos's store. He has the alligator clips. He has a variety of other test leads that you could you could find and use there, and uh, and we strongly recommend it. Based, I, I, I can strongly recommend it based on personal experience using this stuff. So thanks very much to Parts Candy. For um, for letting us uh, for being our sponsor here, Pete. We haven't had a sponsor in a long time. We're moving up in the world on TV, getting sponsors. I'm telling you, man, it's gonna be impressive. Gonna be impressive. Hey, that brings us to Solder Smoke Bow Bag. Bong. I gotta get the gong back in there. I somehow lost it somewhere along the way. Hey, we got um, we got some we got some really good mail. Walter KA4KXX, our old friend in Orlando. He's been, man, he has been, he's been homebrewing for a long time. He does alfresco homebrewing. He builds SSB rigs. Walter is just awesome. He had a question a while back, and it was a good question, about the diodes in the, uh, in, in the, in the amplifiers in the original BIDX20. Not the, not the TIAs, but the original BIDX20 had, had diodes in there, and, and one for receive, one for transmit on each of the amplifiers. And his question was, why? Why were they there? And why did they disappear on subsequent uh, BIDX designs? So a busy guy, another busy guy is Farhan. Farhan's a very busy guy. He's got all kinds of things going on in his life over there in Hyderabad. But I managed to, to, to get in touch with Farhan and asked him. I said, hey, look, Walter wants to know about what the diodes were for. Farhan came back and said that they're there. They were there to prevent the reverse junction of the off transistor from conducting and clipping the waveform. So unless you had that diode in there to fully shut down the other transistor, he's, he's right, a, a voltage peak coming across might cause that off transistor's junction to conduct when it shouldn't. So good, a good, good, good answer there. And apparently it, it satisfied Walter's curiosity about this thing. Thanks very much, Walter, and thanks Farhan for providing the answer. I've been talking to Tony, G4WIF, Tony, uh, uh, always great to correspond with him and a good guy to talk to about test gear. He and I were talking about this audio test gear, noise factor, IMD, harmonic distortion kind of thing. And he also uh, got involved and we, he was talking about, and you were talking to him also, Pete, about uh, the parasets and using the parasets in occupied territory and how hazardous that might have been. Uh, Tony mentioned G3ROO, RU. Uh, uh, over there in Dorset, Ian, and uh, 
and, and his parasite. And I remember that way back in 2007, 2008, I had actually been to Dorset, to Ian Shack, to the ROO Shack, and I actually had called CQ with, with his parasite. It was a thrill. That was great. I, I, I noted one thing in that picture, yeah. Bill. Your hair was darker. I know, I know. It, it's true. <laughs> yes, it's true. Yeah. <laughs> Time flies. <laughs> Uh, anyway, one of the things, I don't know if people understand this, but R-O-O is his call sign, Rue. And this led to the name of the company, Kanga, Kanga Parts. Get it? Kanga Rue. Get it? Okay. A little bit of ham radio trivia there. Talking to Todd, K7TFC out there in Portland. Todd is a, Tom, uh, Todd is a great guy. He came up with these little boards for TIA amps, and I got a bunch of them and used them in the 1712 rig. I put the parts in there, set it at the uh, at the, the uh, amplification that I wanted, and got the TIAs that I used in the 1712 rig. And Todd was also commenting, Dean had, Dean had commented on the pine boards that I used as the base for this rig. And Todd was wondering if they had any kind of special RF properties. And Dean, Dean of course, jokingly said that they do. And I just said, well, it's just Frank Jones. Frank Jones liked pine boards, so Frank Jones put in a good word with the radio gods, and off we go. Um, you, you know where that really came from? Where'd that come from? Because in the old days, uh, hams used to work on the kitchen table, and the cutting boards in the kitchen yeah. were usually a pine board, so they'd pull out the cutting board, yeah. <laughs> pull the circuit on yeah, that, well, get it, it working. That, that's definitely the right origin the of the kitchen term table. breadboarding. Breadboarding. Yeah. They would. They would. Yeah. They would also often steal their their mother's breadboard yeah. and build yeah. it on the breadboard. It's it's actually it's yeah. a great way, I think, yeah. to build things these days. And so I, I I'm I'm a big and, and, and Peter Parker, Peter Parker uses the 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 plastic boards. He puts a grid on it, puts the screws in there, and he just solders everything up. So he he's taking that the next step. It, that's it. Yeah. That, that well, that's that's an old technique. You see that in the Ladybird books by by yeah. uh, George Dobbs and others. They would put screws in and then use the screws as sort of like terminals. Uh, a different way of doing it. Yeah. Um, we mentioned uh, Dean uh, KK4 DAS. Uh, Dean has also been building variable oscillators, but he was trying to use the ceramic variable oscillators that I had used on 40. And I may have jumped the gun here, Pete, because I, I was bragging about the stability of the my variable oscillator using a ceramic resonator. All right, I used a ceramic resonator on 40 minutes, 40 meters, and I said it was remarkably stable, and I, I even said it might meet Giuliano criteria for oscillator stability. <laughs> Maybe <laughs> I I don't know whether it was quite there. I I you know now I I've kind of grown. I've gotten more demanding of my VFOs, and Dean told me that it was only drifting like five hertz a minute. And I said, man, five hertz a minute—that's just horrible. You know that would that would that would send the denizens of forty meters and their waterfalls into you know radio frequency apoplexy. I mean, it would be they'd be falling out of their chairs in horror. Um, so we'll have to see. I mean, uh, I, I think it is possible to build more stable VFOs just following the advice of Frank Harris and Joe Carr and Doug DeMauw. Um, I mentioned Mike WU2D, the, the VFOs and temperature compensation and the ARC-5s. I got a nice email from, a nice package from Chris, KD4PBJ, and I know you got one too, 
What a great guy Chris is. He's got a lot of parts and he, he sent us just the kind of care packages that we need to replenish the, the, the stock well, here. Thanks very much, Chris. Yeah, well, it makes a difference when you're a home brewer because you know what people use. I, that's right. <laughs> I mean, There's a lot of parts the out there that say, we look at them and say, what's <laughs> that? But, it, but, but Chris is a home brewer. He knows, he knows what the good stuff is. <clears throat> we got an email from Steve, Mike Zero, Echo Charlie Sierra. <clears throat> he said that inspired by solder smoke, and especially by you, Pete, he recently moved some items, one item in particular, off his own individual shelf of shame. You mentioned the shelf of shame, where projects that you couldn't get working go. Um, he, uh, Steve, has didn't the shelf of shame. He had the box of shame, same concept. But he heard us talking about this. He pulled it off, and after many years, got the device working. So thanks, woohoo, for solder smoke. Three cheers for Pete Giuliano. Another item of gear rescued from the box of shame. Um, Jason KD2RKN. Uh, is now building a direct conversion receiver, and he says that it is all our fault. I think mostly your fault recently with the direct conversion receivers. Um, Chris Mannon is a new ham from Indiana, and he is joining the Colorburst Liberation Army. I haven't I haven't put it in the mail yet, but I have the envelope here, Chris. I'm going to send you the crystal that will officially induct you into the ranks of the Colorburst Liberation Army. Very good. Uh, KC4GMH is listening. Glad to have you aboard. Ed, N2XDD, another CBLA inductee, <clears throat> has already been armed with a 3.579 megahertz crystal. Ed, this, of course, obligates you, and it's deep, deep moral obligation. It obligates you to build the transmitter, all right? So you can't just let the crystal sit there gather dust you got to put the put get the seven or eight parts together build the michigan mighty might do the right thing <laughs> harvey wa3 eib who we correspond with quite a bit he's an o another proud owner of an ht37 he has uh, his own personal ham radio museum that he's been building and that's um that's going along and he's working i think he's got like 20 different stations in the museum good stuff i might you know i have a few items i might send them um Tom, I'm sorry, Tim, AG4RZ, is back in the solder smoke. And he attributes it to the Solder Smoke Podcast. Welcome back, Tim. Melt some solder. Fred, KC5RT, an old friend who has sent us a lot of good stuff over the years. Good to hear from you, Fred. And he recommends the Banggood RF signal generator from China for 88 bucks. Does some amazing things. You know, a lot of times we're initially scornful of the stuff coming out of China. But, you know, you look around, I got a Rigol scope. You got a Rigol scope. Dean has a Rigol scope. Wes Hayward has a Rigol scope. Farhan has a Rigol scope. Good stuff coming there. Right, so, anyway, um, Fred recommends we take a look at the uh, the Banggood RF signal generator for 88 bucks. Uh, Shlomo, 4X4LF, is listening and homebrewing from a kibbutz in Israel. I think that's pretty cool. We got somebody homebrewing and listening to the podcast from a kibbutz in Israel. Good luck to you there, Shlomo. And just this week, I got a nice message from Chuck, KF8TI. Uh, and he's got a really interesting background in the geological sciences. And he, he told me that he, he, he read the book, the Solder Smoke book, and found a lot of parallels in our two, in our life experiences. And he said that uh, he is... Um, 
uh, he, when he was in the Philippines, he was a Peace Corps volunteer, and his task was to set up a physics lab for the poor, very poor Philippine community that he was living in. And he talks about some of the things he did using really just the stuff that was available decades ago in the Philippines to get a decent physics lab going. So we'll have more from, from Chuck, I'm sure. Pete, that's the end of Solder Smoke Mailbag. I think that's about it. No, wait, wait, wait. The one thing we forgot to mention. This happened during the trip out to L.A. We, we, we got contacted by another company. It's like it, when it rains, it pours. And it, this is something that at first you and I said, what the heck? That, you know? But these people, they really pitched us. It was, it was sort of around the, the time we had the meetings with the suits at the, at the TV company. It's a new company called, get this, what a, what a name, Techie Tats. <laughs> what the hell is Techie Tats? Sort sort of like TikTok. Yeah, but Techie Tats, Tat is is I guess modern day slang Tattoo. for tattoos, right? Yeah. Now I managed to avoid tattoos during all my years in the army. Me too. And uh, you know, but here we are, and now they're making a special offer. They say they the, the whole idea of this company is tattoos for the technically inclined. You know, yes. no more sunsets or motorcycles or girls' names or broken hearts or, or mom or any of that stuff. No, they say that they've got, we've got a new, more technically inclined community. And so they're specializing in things like formulas. Like they'll put on your shoulder or on your back or on your whatever. E, e equals IR, right? Yeah, uh, or Maxwell's <laughs> equations or anything else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They, they, and they yeah. want us to promote this thing. And amazingly, you and I agreed. They put some money on the table, and we said, okay. So in the next few weeks, Pete and I are going to go. There's the, they, have, they have one out there in, uh, in, in the L.A. area. They have, happen to have one here in the D.C. area, too. And so we're both going to go get techie tats, all right? Yeah. But, but I, you know, the thing is, we're not really quite sure what tattoos to get. Yeah. I think it should be... Kind of, there should be kind of a, a heritage, kind of emotional connection there. But it also should be something that helps reinforce the conflict that the TV guys are doing. So, I, for example, I think my tattoo is going to be a Cole Pitts analog LC oscillator schematic, <gasps> right? Maybe on my shoulder, right? Yeah, yeah. Now, and I think you might want to get, I don't know. An Arduino and an SI5351? Well, well, I've been thinking about that. What, what are you going to go for? Well, I was thinking of getting a, a tattoo of Hedy Lamar. Well, that would be good. I mean, you could get that. Get... And, and there's a reason for that. Why? She's one of us. She is. She was, yes. Yeah. And quite a looker, case, too, I must say. Yeah. In case you didn't know it, look at your cell phone and thank Hedy Lamar. That's right. And I, I think she's especially kind of... Of interest to you because she laid the groundwork for much of the SDR technology that we're dealing with yes. today. Yes, spread spectrum, believe it or not, all that kind of stuff. <laughs> yeah. All right, but I still think you need something. Maybe okay, so maybe you get Hedy Lamar on one shoulder, right? And then on the other shoulder, maybe a schematic of some sort. All right, but here's where we turn to our listening audience. Give us some ideas on what we should do. What what kind of tattoos should Pete and I get from the new from this new company, Techie Tats? We got to do it. We're supposed to do it within a month or so. And I've never had a tattoo before. I know you haven't either. 
But at this point in life, tryout. Beat, who maybe, cares? maybe a tryout. Okay, we'll give it a try. What the heck? It could be fun. Yeah, tryout. Why, why, why not? All right. I mean, it's not like yeah. you're doing it on your forehead or something. It's on your shoulder. Yeah. Right? Good. Okay, yeah. that'd be fine. Um, my kids are always talking about tattoos, so okay, we're gonna get tattoo. Um, techie tats. I'm gonna go. I'm I'm gonna go either with the. You know, I even thought of if I wanted to go even bigger, I thought about getting a tattoo of the entire Bidex Twenty schematic. Might be mm. too much. Ooh, that would hurt. <laughs> <laughs> had to do your whole back. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, maybe just a cold bits oscillator. I don't, I don't know. Yeah. And I, I think you Triode. should think of something with the SI50. Transistor. I'm sorry? A transistor. A, tra- a point <laughs> contact <laughs> transistor. transistor. BJT. Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, please, if you have any suggestions in the area, send it to us. We're really interested in what you're in your... Your input on this, send it to us at Solder Smoke. That's one word at yahoo.com. Tell us you think what you think Pete and I should get for for tra- for our 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 tattoos from Techie Tats, and we'll get you the website for the Techie Tats people too. It's it's, it's a new operation. We'll get it to you soon. Put it up on yeah, the blog. Yeah, you know the the, the alternative to the Bedex is to put on their Butch Mason rules, because Butch Mason is the inventor of the Bedex. Oh man! Back in 1952, Butch Mason. Butch Mason. Butch Mason rules. All yes. right. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe. We'll we'll think of something like that. Maybe that underneath <laughs> it there, like where it usually says "Mom." You know. Butch yeah. There you go. Pete Giuliano, thanks very much for getting up so early out there on the on the left coast and joining us. Any final words? Now for- it's now it's a regular time to get up. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's late in the morning for you these days. Yeah, yeah. Hang in there, Pete. You're doing great work. It's tough. I know it's tough. You bet. All right. We'll talk to you on the next podcast, and I will relay to you any of the input that we get from our listening Techie audience. Techie Tats. 7-3 from Northern Virginia. 7-3 from the left coast. Thanks a lot, Pete. Bye-bye. Bye. Ooh, that's awesome. The Solder Smoke Podcast is produced once or twice a month using roadkill computers in an electronics workshop somewhere in the wilds of Northern Virginia. The podcast is available via iTunes and directly from our website, soldersmoke.com. Our blog, the Solder Smoke Daily News, is at soldersmoke.blogspot.com. Send email to soldersmoke, that's one word, at yahoo.com. Solder Smoke is listener-supported, and there are many ways you can help keep the podcast going. Please spread the word. Let your friends know about Solder Smoke, the podcast, and our blog. Put links to the podcast and the blog on your websites. Buy a copy of the critically acclaimed book, Solder Smoke, Global Adventures in Wireless Electronics, available from lulu.com. Begin all your visits to Amazon via the Amazon link on our blog page. In this way, Solder Smoke gets a commission from anything you buy on Amazon. Buy some of our attractive Solder Smoke t-shirts, coffee mugs, and bumper stickers at the Solder Smoke store at cafepress.com. If you have a small business, consider advertising on the podcast or on the blog. Our rates are reasonable and our staff is friendly. If none of this appeals to you but you still want to help, well, we have a donation button in the upper left-hand corner of the blog page. However you choose to help, we thank you for your support. Ciao, bravi ragazzi!